Good morning. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Joshua chapter 7. Joshua chapter 7. We began looking at this uh, last week. We've been considering some of the danger and consequences of um, living in sin, actually living in secret sin and how that affects us all. Uh, We've been considering um, the key to victory exemplified by Joshua and in his life, and we're going to be looking at that in more detail this week. And then the root cause of spiritual failure. And there's several lessons that we can learn from the life of Achan, and we've already um, uh, given several applications in that regard, and we'll look at some more um, this week. There's no end to the advertisements and things that are around that tell us if you want to be successful, you know, do this. Here's Investor's Business Daily, the 10 secrets to success. They're secrets. Now they're finally revealed. This Wednesday, there's this event down at the uh, sports arena with all these popular speakers. Get motivated. And, of course, you get a free subscription to Success Magazine. Now, there's nothing wrong with these things in and of themselves, but we must look at these things through the lens of Scripture. Amen? Would you agree with that? There's nothing wrong with, you know, we can't condemn these things in and of themselves, but we, we must look at these through the lens of Scripture. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians tells us very clearly talking about the children of Israel and their wilderness wanderings and the lessons that are to be learned. He says, now these things happened as examples to us so that we would not crave the things that they also craved. Paul would go on and say that now these things happened to them as an example and they were written for what? Our instruction. So there's much to be learned from studying stories such as this in the book of Joshua, such as the story of Achan. There's a lot that can be applied. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us very clearly that they're written for our instruction. Now, God is very concerned about holiness. His character is altogether holy and righteous. He's concerned about our obedience, those of us who have been washed by the blood of Christ. He's very concerned about that. And it's very clear that a lack of obedience to God's standards will lead to sin and will ultimately lead to failure. The nature of sin is that it is very deceptive, isn't it? Sin promises all these wonderful things, all this happiness that can be enjoyed, this satisfaction, even a perceived security if you just give in to the sin a little bit, just for a little while. And Moses tells us that that might be true for a short time. Because it's the passing pleasures of sin, but ultimately it it will bring despair. This week, Anna Nicole Smith found dead at 39 years of age. Somebody that lived for the pursuit of worldly happiness, leading an immoral life, trying to gain for herself honor and money and prestige and fame. And, And some would say, well, she had it all. But ultimately she gained the whole world and lost her soul. She's very much aware now what's really important in life. Would you agree? Now, Joshua as a book is a very important book because it takes the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and it connects it to the, to the continuing history of Israel. And it, it's kind of a connector in that it connects from the children of Israel being brought out of bondage from Egypt, now finally inheriting the, the, the land that was promised to Abraham. Now, by way of review, we're just going to take a couple minutes and review what we looked at last time. 
Chapter 6, as you know, was the great victory in Jericho, that great battle. And they, per- they followed the battle plan exactly as the Lord had laid it out, and they won the battle. The walls came down. And it was such a huge victory, but chapter 7 is such a stark contrast because it begins with this, but the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban as it was clearly set forth. Last week, we looked at this humiliating defeat of Israel. This is God's chosen people. This is God's army. And they're defeated by a mere 3,000 men, or two to 3,000 men, probably in Ai. And then we looked at also in detail of how the actions of one person affected the whole community. Notice it says the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully because one person's sin affected the whole nation. Now, Joshua's command was very clear in chapter 6 and verse 18 that, that you were not to take anything that was under the ban, not to even covet them, but they are holy to be given to the Lord for the treasury of the Lord. That is, he was to receive the first fruits. And after this battle, the people's hearts became like water. There's no substance left. There's no hope left. There's despair. Achan, in his greediness and covetousness and in his sin, has robbed the nation of its purity and of its holiness. Looking at verse, chapter 6 and verse 18, let's just read that so we can acquaint ourselves with this. But as for you, only keep yourselves from the things under the ban so that you do not covet them or take some of the things under the ban and make the camp of Israel accursed and bring trouble on it. But all the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord, and they shall go into the treasury of the Lord. God wanted the first fruits of this battle, just as he wants the first fruits from you and all, all that you do and all that you have. He wants the first fruits. We ought to give him the first fruits. And very clearly here, to be given, the first fruits is to go to the Lord. It's interesting in the subsequent battles that they're able to keep all the spoil for themselves and the houses and just about everything. But here, that he wanted all of that for himself, the Lord did. Now, Achan's sin caused God's displeasure to come upon the whole nation. And in verses 12 and 13, we looked at, the Lord said very clearly, you cannot stand before your enemies until you remove the wicked man from amongst yourselves. Purify yourselves, he says in 13. Consecrate the people. And so we gave many applications to this, and it's a very clear call for us to beware of, of, of nursing secret sins. And, and, and even corporately, as a church, we need to be very careful about this. And as the King James says, we're not to touch the accursed thing. And in the 21st century church, there's too much of this. Too much of going to, to look at sin and then to touch it and then to dabble with it. And ultimately, people are enslaved in sin. It's grievous. It brings shame on the name of Christ. We talked about in great detail the necessity of cultivating the inward life. That is, being prepared so that when temptation comes, you will be able to resist it. You will be able to say no. Because temptation will come, brothers and sisters. It will come in fierceness. It will come in power. And it will come when you least expect it. And if your inward life is not cultivated to where you're able to withstand that temptation, you will ultimately fall into sin. So this week, we're going to look at verses 16 to 26 with God's help of this passage. And we're going to look at, first and foremost, the character 
of Joshua and glean some of the keys of success and victory as set forth in the word of God and exemplified in the life of Joshua, looking at chapter one, what um, Scott had read earlier. We're going to see that God judges all sin. We're going to look at uh, an anatomy of sin, as it were, and, and the steps that took place where Achan fell and then our hope of restoration to God, that when we sin as the people of God, there's great hope that we can be restored once again and have his favor. And finally, we're going to look at how Joshua is a glorious type of Christ. And I, I hope you're thinking along those lines and thinking, wow, what the, par- the parallels there. So first of all, the keys to success and victory taken from the life and character of Joshua. And I'd invite you to turn back to chapter 1 for a moment. Joshua was an upright and obedient man. As you know, in Numbers 14, a very important passage, if you want to study this a little bit further, that's when the 12 spies went in to spy out the land. Ten spies brought back the bad report, right? Oh, there's no way we can overtake them. Two spies had great faith and trust in the Lord, and that was Joshua and Caleb. Overall, he was faithful to God in what God had given him to do. He trusted the Lord. His life was exemplified by an obedient life. And obedience is the key to victory in the Christian life for us. And he sets a great example of that. James Montgomery Boyce uh, points this out, that we have many professing Christians in the United States of America, but very few with the character of Joshua. Very few that will be strong and courageous and that will lead the people and and lead against opposition. Now, what are the keys to his success? Let's look again at verse 6 to 9. Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you, and do not turn from it either to the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do all according to what is written in it. And then you will make, for your, then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So what are the keys to this success? Notice success is mentioned twice. Being prosperous is mentioned once in this very short passage. And it doesn't take, it's not rocket science to see this. Joshua relied on the written word of God first and foremost. He relied on the word. He knew the word. He he studied it. He meditated on it. He had a special relationship with the word. And again, the Lord is commissioning him here, and he's telling him that you must rely on the word. You must know the word. Joshua did not rely on some what seemed good to him. When it came time for the battle plan at Jericho, he did not say, well, that sounds, I I don't like the idea of marching around these times. I'm going to modify that plan. No, it's not his to modify He listened to what God had told him, and he relied on the written word of God. And it's interesting, at the very beginning of this book already, Moses has just died, and the writing of Moses are written, and also they're elevated to the status of the revelation of God. Joshua was to know the word. He was to study the word. He was to be well acquainted with the word. 
And we see him later in chapter 8 reading the whole law to the people there, to the nation. He was to talk about the word. It says, do not let this word depart from your mouth. He was always talking about the word. And it's interesting how contrary that is today in the workplace or with your neighbors. And and how if you're talking about the Lord, you're kind of looked on like, isn't that just for Sunday? Like, you know, you're looked at as a fanatic. But Joshua talked about the Lord no matter where he was. And this is very important. Look at the end of of 8b. He meditated on the word. Meditate on it day and night. Consider the word. Mull it over. Chew the cud, to to use that illustration as what a cow would do. And and because it goes beyond knowledge and beyond talking about it, meditating on it with what's the purpose of that is to apply it. Application. And finally, Joshua was to obey the word in its entirety. And this is the most important one, and this is a great application to us, is that when you know what the Word of God says, you know what the standard of God is, you must be willing to obey it. Not offering a series of excuses of my situation is different, no, but having the resolve to obey it. And this is where the modern church, I think, is hurting in our day. The modern church, they know what God's Word says, but homosexuality, well... I don't like Romans 1. I'm going to take that out. You know, all the same-sex marriage, all these types of things. The, the, the modern church has is, is just become a terrible example of what the church of Christ should be. They're distracted with gimmicks and programs and what the culture is pressing upon them, and they're changing and modifying what they believe to the culture, becoming very postmodern as though God does not have some eternal standard that does not change And it's grievous to me how many Christians have never even read through the Word of God. How many people that take the name of Christ, they don't even know the Word. They're biblically illiterate. And yet they could read romance novels. They can read just about any other thing. But when it comes to reading the Word of God, there's always something else more important, like the San Diego Union or whatever. And so what's the result of this? We have a godless generation being raised. Because adults do not know the word, even those who take the name of Christ, they're not training their children. The children are being indoctrinated in the public schools. We have a godless generation being raised. It's interesting to me as you would ponder and consider what will, what will this nation be like in 20 or 30 years. May God have mercy. May he send revival. May he multiply those who are true children of God. Well, we see even Joshua's obedience exemplified in Joshua chapter 7. The hard news comes down that Israel has sinned. He must discern who, who it is that, that is the one who's the guilty party. And actually, let's turn back there. Notice uh, verses 14 and 15, or actually verses 10 to on is the Lord there. He instructs him what to do, verses 14 and 15. But 16 to 18 is when Joshua is actually obeying. And it says that he arose early in the morning to bring, you know, to bring all Israel by the tribes. And that demonstrates his zeal for God's favor to be restored. That demonstrates his zeal to want to obey, not to delay obedience, but, want, but to obey immediately. Joshua discovered that. Achan was the guilty one by lots, and we looked at that. And as the, fam- the tribes were brought by, and then the clans, and then the families, and so forth. And the most difficult part, carrying out the execution 
He did not waver. And we're going to look at that in detail, verses 24 to 26 there. Joshua was truly a prosperous man. It says that he would have success whatever he would do, wherever he would go. And, you know, which of you would say, I don't want to be successful? We all want to be successful in what God has commanded us to do, in what God has called us to do in our workplaces as a parent, witnessing for the, for the sake of the gospel, and yet we fail. And what is the problem? The issue is that we modify our, our own battle plan. We have our own ways that we want to do things, and we don't do it according to God's standard. We have to follow God's divine formula for living the Christian life to receive victory and success and prosperity. And very clearly, that is to know the word of God and to fear the Lord. Psalm 1, that wonderful hymn that we sung right before we got up. What's the result of that knowing the word and meditating on the word is that you're a tree firmly planted by streams of water whose leaf does not wither, who blossoms and is prosperous in all that he does. That's the godly man, the picture of a godly man. Joshua fully obeyed the Lord. In chapter 8, later, when the, after they do um, defeat Ai, what does he do? He does exactly according to Deuteronomy 27 and reading the entire law to the people as they would erect altars and offer sacrifices to God. So we see Joshua, we gleaned all these keys of how to be successful. It's clearly set forth three times in four verses to be successful and to be prosperous. Psalm 1, you have similar language. And so may God help us to apply these things to our life. Well, moving on, having looked at these keys to victory, now let's move on to the second part of the story here. And we see here that because God is righteous, all sin must and will be judged. So let's read verses 16 to 21. So Joshua arose early in the morning and brought Israel near by tribes, and the tribe of Judah was taken, and he brought the family of Judah near, and he took the family of Zerahitus, and he brought the family of Zerahitus near man by man, and Zebdi was taken, and he brought his household near man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zebdi, the son of Zerai, from the tribe of Judah was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, I implore you, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel. And give praise to him and tell me what you have done. Do not hide it from me. So Achan answered and answered Joshua and said, Truly, I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle, that is a cloak or a robe, from Shinar, and 200 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold, 50 shekels in weight, then I coveted them and took them. And behold, they are concealed in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath it. His judgment, God's judgment is always just. It is never to be doubted. And Achan had to face the consequences of his sin. And again, it's a reminder that all secret sin will be brought it will be laid open to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And sometimes it may not be until the final judgment, that secret sin that you've carried all through your life, but it will be laid open in the final judgment. Or oftentimes it's in this life. You're caught red-handed. There it is. It's open and it's laid 
before the Lord and before the people. For Achan, it was a matter of hours. A matter of hours. At God's command, the lots were drawn one by one. First, the whole tribe of Judah is selected, and then the individual clans, and then the families, and then finally, the individual. And Joshua says, give glory to the Lord. Now, what did he mean by that? What he meant by that is, is do, not, do not aggravate your crime by trying to deny it. You have been selected, and it is the Lord who took the lot, and it landed on you. You are the one. Do not aggravate the crime by denying it. This is an amazing thing. Can you picture Achan? As it's the tribe of Judah selected, maybe he's thinking, it'll never come to me. Then the clan, nah, they'll never get to me. And finally, he is selected. Can you imagine the countenance of his face as he is pointed out before the whole nation? What horror What distraughtness has suddenly come upon him. And he says, it is true, I have sinned against the Lord. What more could he say? And then even in his, where he's saying, when I saw among the spoil, even that was an attempt to minimize the sin. Because what is spoil? Spoil is that for those who are conquering to take for their own possessions. This was not spoil. This was consecrated to the Lord. It was to go to the temple treasury. And so for us, all sin will be brought to light. Numbers says your sin will find you out. And so let's look in verse 22 and 23. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent. And behold, it was concealed in the tent with the silver underneath it. And they took them from inside the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the sons of Israel. And they poured them out. Before the Lord. Now, it's interesting in verse 22, Joshua sent messengers and they ran. Now, why did they run? There was an incredible sense upon the nation of God's displeasure. His displeasure because someone had sinned and taken the accursed thing. Then every single person in the nation was aware of it. This was not something that just those who were very close by was aware of. It was very evident. They had been defeated. Twenty-six of their mightiest men had had perished in the battle. There was a sense of awe upon the nation as God's displeasure was upon it. And so those who were chosen to be messengers took, made haste and ran to get the articles and to bring them back to Joshua that justice might be performed. And the articles are, depending on your translation, they are poured out, they poured them out, or they're spread out, I like that translation, or laid out before the Lord and before all the people. All the evidence is now laid out so that everyone can see that it's very evident that Achan indeed sinned, he indeed had taken something that was under the ban. And what a frightening thing to think of. Not so much that it was laid out before the people, yes, but all that is laid out very clearly before the Lord. What he took, what he tried to hide, what he buried in the ground is now open for all to see, and most of all, before the eyes of a holy God. It's all laid out. And it's a beautiful picture of how there's nothing that you can hide from God. It will be laid out, it will be poured out before the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. And so you must consider 
When that day of reckoning comes, consider that day. That day in which everything that you thought you could hide is now will be undug and it will be laid out. Your sin will be shouted from the rooftops if you do not confess and forsake and repent of it and cut it off. Paul says in Galatians, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows this, he shall also reap. And if you sow to the flesh, you're going to reap corruption. If you sow to the spirit, you'll reap life. This week I saw a fascinating picture of a a thunderstorm over the Rocky Mountains. And you're familiar with time-lapse photography, I trust, uh, many of you. It's where a series of events is taken in one picture. And so as you would look with the naked eye at a thunderstorm, there's an individual bolt of lightning, another bolt. But with a time-lapse photograph of the whole storm, you can imagine Hundreds of lightning bolts and this web coming down, all captured in one picture. And it's a beautiful, beautiful picture of taken throughout the duration. And it's a picture of how our sin presents itself to God. You see, we think, well, that's one sin this week. That's one sin next week. God sees the whole picture. The whole web of all of your sins throughout your life is being is laid clearly before him. What may seem insignificant as a small sin or one sin here or one sin there, the way God sees it, is they're all lined up. And so, again, the urgency to deal with sin, do not let it remain. Well, the story ends with Achan being um, executed. And it's interesting, even his family is executed. Let's read this, 24 to 26. Then Joshua and all of Israel with him, took Achan, the son of Zerai, the silver, the mantle, the bar of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, all that belonged to him, and they brought them up to the valley of Achor. Joshua said, Why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. And all Israel stoned them with stones, and they burned them with fire, After they had stoned them with stones, and they raised up over him a great heap of stones that stands to this day. And the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger, and therefore the name of that place has been called the Valley of Achor, even to this day. Now you might say, why was his family executed? It's obvious that the children obviously knew about this. Maybe they helped him to conceal it. It was probably his choice in stealing it and bringing it home, but perhaps within the confines of his own tent, he was sharing these things, or he had told them, don't say anything, there's something, whatever, but, but God is just. And in Deuteronomy 24:16, it says that children may not be killed for the sins of their father. And so it is obvious and clear here that these children somehow participated in the sin. And it's interesting, they went to the Valley of Achor. You see the, the play on words there, Achan and Achor. The Valley of Trouble, the Valley of Disaster, as, as the word means there. And they went outside the camp to execute Achan. And notice in verse 24, who stoned him? Was it just the firing squad, so to speak, those who were accurate with stones? The whole nation, that is, representatives from the whole nation participated in the execution 
of Achan. And then in verse 26, very glorious phrase here, the fierceness of the Lord's anger is now removed. Favor is now restored to Israel. And the significance of the stones being built up, which, by the way, they they were stoned to death because you're not to burn anyone to death. So they were stoned to death, and then they were burned according to God's command earlier in the chapter. But this heap of stones is a perpetual reminder of what the end of sin is and hiding secret sin. So we need to be reminded again that God is just. He will judge sin. He is altogether holy, infinitely holy and righteous and just. And he doesn't set aside his justice and his righteousness so that he might love, but rather he loves in the context of his justice and his holiness and his righteousness. So what will it take for some of you? What will it take? Will you confess your sin? Will you forsake it? Or does it have to be laid out before the people of God? Does it have to be laid out before the Lord? Ultimately, it will be laid out if you do not repent and forsake it. Peter tells us it is time for judgment to begin where? In the household of God. And so it's a call to self-examination. Well, we've seen in the text that God will certainly judge sin because he is holy and righteous. And now let us turn and consider some of the root elements that led to Achan's disobedience. And we looked at this in uh, some detail last week. If you weren't here, I'd encourage you to get the tape um, if this is something you want to learn more of. But again, let's, let's look here just particularly at verse 21 when he's telling how what happened. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak of Babylon and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold, I then coveted them and took them, and they are now concealed in my tent underneath. So first and foremost, Achan was dissatisfied. He had allowed a discontent to resonate in his heart. He was dissatisfied with what God's providence was for him, the way God had ordered his life. Perhaps rather than looking forward, that God is now finally bringing us to the, to the promised land, a land of, of milk and honey and, and where we will be prosperous. He kept looking back to all those years in the wilderness and the manna and the clothes that were wearing out. He wasn't looking ahead, but he was looking back. He became bitter and discontent, obviously, because he decided that he was going to take things into his own hands. The first opportunity I get... I'm taking matters into my own hands, and I'm not going to live like this anymore. I'm dissatisfied with the God, the way God has ruled my life. And so his dissatisfaction, which was a sin, gave birth to this dis- disobedience. And this pattern of sin is often repeated throughout history. In Isaiah 14, it speaks of Satan becoming dissatisfied as a creature, and he wanted to be like the Creator. Or consider Adam and Eve. The same three verbs are used in the fall that she saw, she coveted, and then she took that progression that is repeated again and again. King David, 2 Samuel 11, right? He's doing something he shouldn't do. He saw, he coveted, and he ultimately took Bathsheba. And this is a situation with us as well, and that's why we have to guard against this. How many times have you thought that you know better than God, the way God is ordering your life? Oh, you would never say that. 
You would never pray that, but by how you live your life in response to God's providence and his ordering of your life is how you demonstrate that you submit to his sovereign will in your life. And ultimately, our sin is due to unbelief, a lack of trust that God is going to order the events of my life exactly as what would be best for me. And we don't believe that, especially when that difficult trial comes. We kick and we chafe, and and that's part of our nature, but we need to submit to his sovereignty. Well, the next element we see is that Achan then coveted what was not his. Now, under the rules of war, the conqueror could take the spoil most often, and maybe Achan was thinking of this. But it's very clear the command that was given in chapter 6 and verse 18, we already read, that was certainly ringing through the ears of every soldier that touched not the accursed thing, and yet he took it. And he's not the conqueror anyway of Jericho. Even though he's a part of that army, he's not the conqueror. Even the Jewish army is not the conqueror of Jericho, but rather the Lord God himself. And he said, I want the first fruits, and I want that for the temple treasury. And everything else is to be destroyed. But Achan thought he knew better, and he coveted what he had the opportunity to take. Now, there's something to be said about the nature of the items that Achan chose to to take. The gold and the silver certainly um, suggest a materialism. And isn't that why the thorny ground here in the parable of the sower never never grows to fruition? Oh, yes, it sprouts out of the ground, and, and there's a shoot, and it grows up. But ultimately, the thorns overtake it. And Jesus says those thorns are the cares of this world. And so this gold and silver, Achan being materialistic, his heart was in the world and the world was in his heart. And so when the opportunity came to sin like this, it was easy for him to take the next step. That robe, this Babylonian uh, robe, um, suggests a desire to be fashionable, to be successful, to be identified with the most prestigious city at that time and and with, with wealth and visible success and fashion. That's the nature of the things that he chose to take. And it's interesting that those two things, materialism and worldliness, are two of the most prevalent sins in our day, isn't it? For those of us who are the people of God, that's even true. The Tenth Commandment is very clear. You shall not covet. It is the root behind so many sins, looking upon something that is not yours, And allowing that in the mind to begin to motivate the volition and the will so that you finally carry out the act. A Christian who is not satisfied with what God has given him is on the slippery slope to falling and becoming a failure, ready to stumble. Well, we see this progression move on. Achan's sin now has moved from the mind to sinful action. It was a deliberate sin. It was a willful transgression against what God had said. He thought he knew better, and he took things into his own hand. His dissatisfaction and his covetousness, which was internal and invisible, like so many of your sins and my sin, invisible, they had not moved to the actual action, had now taken that next step, and he committed the act. He stole them. He hid them. He buried them. He lied. It says he was deceptive about it. See how one sin leads to these other sins. This is why putting death, putting sin to death in the mind is so important. 
This is why cultivating the inward life is so important. It's why using the means of grace that are available to you are vital for a Christian that would desire to live upright in this world. You see, when that sin is in the mind and it's hanging there and that picture is there and you're turning around and you're looking at it and it begins to drip down and move the affections, it becomes sweeter and sweeter. You must confess it and forsake it and cut it off at that point or you will be stumbling and slipping down, slip, sliding down that slippery slope. And ultimately, once the act has taken place, just like Achan, there's a multitude of other sins trying to cover it up, trying to hide it, lying about it, being deceptive. It's very important that we rule our minds and that we, we maintain this inward life. It's not as though Achan woke up that morning and said, I think I'll steal some of the articles that belong to the Lord. Again, he was already dissatisfied. He was already not, not content with what God had given him. And so when the opportunity came, it was easy for him to take. We looked last week in detail at these degrees of temptation. We're not going to look at those again, but I will mention this. This last week, Dateline NBC had a special, as they've had in the past, and I don't typically watch this show, but this particular one relates to this message. And it was a story about how men chat with young girls on the Internet. Now, first of all, there's a lot to be said for that. There's a perversion that's in the mind that's been allowed to fester so that now the act has now become a little chat, a little chit-chat. You know, what's the harm in that? Well, ultimately, there are police, um, undercover police officers on the other end and then they set up an address, and they have this house of a sting operation, and they just arrest man after man after man that willingly takes that next step and says, now I'm going to go. And it's interesting to watch the countenance of some of these men because one knew it was wrong. He was at the doorway. No, I'm not going to come in. And the decoy is trying to get him. No, I'm not, I, just, I know it's wrong. And he went in, and he just said, my life's ruined. It's over. There's no hope for my life. Absolute despair. Another man said, there's nothing left for me but suicide. Do you see the progression of sin when you allow things to fester? And how, now, this is with unconverted men, obviously. Well, we don't know that. There may have been a Christian involved there. I don't know. But it, to where the progression continues to continues and how degrading and how low one will go to fulfill that fantasy so ultimately, Achan, moving on, becomes a hypocrite, right? He put on all appearances, and now after he stole the stuff, he wasn't high. I mean, he's, he's bumping shoulders with the other children of Israel and everything. He became a hypocrite. He knew that he had sinned, and, and he made himself look upright. And as an obedient soldier, you know, I've helped conquer Jericho, whatever, but all the while he knew that he was being a hypocrite. And you know that word in the Greek has an allusion to the theater, as an allusion to putting up a mask, to hide the reality, to put up a mask, to hide the reality. And that's exactly what he did. Some here put on a smile. They put on a mask. And they're really aching. They're hurting and sin. Don't put on a mask. You're with the people of God who love you. Share your burdens with one another. Confess your sins one to another that you might receive help and grace. 
One man said, performing duties without spiritual affections to God is like a sacrifice without fire, worthless, completely unacceptable to God. And so we need to be careful of going through the outward motions, going through the outward motions without our affections being involved with what we're doing, whether it's worship or or anything else in the Christian life. Jesus speaks very strongly to the Pharisees, who were very clear hypocrites. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are full of robbery and self-indulgence. Woe to you, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, but you're full of dead men's bones. So pretty on the outside, but inwardly full of corruption. Well, let's move on. And I've been waiting to get to this part. We've seen that God will judge sin, and we've seen the root cause of sin. But, brothers and sisters, God is faithful to restore his people when they fall in sin. And that's the beautiful picture of Joshua chapter 7 here. Yes, Joshua 7 is certainly a message of judgment, clearly set forth against the people of God. But it is also a story of hope of God's blessings once again being restored to the nation. Once that sin is repudiated, dealt with, cut off, removed, and the wicked man is removed from amongst us, the the blessing of God comes. You see, continuing to hide sin is not the solution. The proverb even says, He who conceals his sin does not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces it finds mercy. Sin cannot be tolerated in the Christian life. Paul writing in Romans, or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that it is the kindness of God that leads you to repentance? When you sin, when you're defeated, when you've stumbled and you're on your face again, remember that as you confess your sin, as you determine to forsake it and repent of it and turn away from it, that God's favor will once again come upon you. Turn over to Hosea chapter 2. Towards the back of your Old Testaments, towards the beginning of the Minor Prophets. A beautiful picture here, like Joshua, a story of judgment. Hosea is told in chapter 1 to take a wife who is a harlot. And it's all beautiful, a beautiful imagery of how Israel has been unfaithful to God. And Gomer is her name. And it's a picture of how Israel is unfaithful to God. And let's look at verse 6. As these judgments are being pronounced, Therefore, behold, I will hedge, her, hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. And so there we see the frustration that in the midst of your sin, there's going to be thorns and difficulties as you go. Look at the next, therefore, chapter, or, uh, verse 9. Therefore, I will take back my grain at harvest time, my new wine in its season. I will also take away my wool and my flax and give given to cover her nakedness a deprivation of taking all these blessings that god gives taking those away now so that you and then look at verse 11 12 and 13 the first line i will also put an end to all her gaiety i will destroy her vines and fig trees i will punish her for the days of the vows judgment 
judgment and a progression of judgment clearly set forth. But in verse 14 and 15, there's a beautiful picture of hope. You expect final death. You expect God to just wipe them away. But look in verse 14 and 15. Therefore, behold, I will allure her. I will bring her into the wilderness and speak kindly to her. And then I will give her vineyards from there and a valley, the valley of Achor as a door of hope. And she will sing there as in the days of her youth and as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. You see, instead of final judgment, which is what you would expect, there's a beautiful picture here of God's infinite mercy and grace to an unfaithful people. And brothers and sisters, if you're honest with your sin, you've been unfaithful to God. You have not lived as you ought. And there's a beautiful picture here of, of hope. That, and, and look at the play on words. The valley of Achor, a place of destruction, a place of disaster, a place of trouble. But wait, that will be the door to hope for God's chosen people. So does, does sin bring chastisement and judgment upon us? Yes. But God uses this judgment to bring about change in his people, that they would turn from their sin and return and come back to him. And he enables us to turn from the folly of our way. Now, who can take this valley of Achor that we've looked at in Joshua 7, right? Place of disaster, execution, a memorial set forth that God is holy and will judge sin. Who can take that place of disaster and turn it into a door of hope? It's not you, it's not me, but it's none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. He took all the trouble, all the disaster, all of our sin upon himself. And he has now made that a way of hope to you. Jesus Christ has done it. He's taken that all upon himself. He went into that dark valley of judgment to pay for our sin. You see, it is us who should be stoned. It's us who should be executed because we're sinners. But he took that all upon himself 2,000 years ago on the cross. And once we're restored, once we've, 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 we've come back and we're, 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 we're satisfied in God once again because that's really one of the keys to remaining pure is to find your satisfaction in God. Not in the wedge of gold, not in the Babylonian robe, not in the silver, but to find your satisfaction in God and Him alone. That's why we need to meditate on God. That's why we need to consider His perfect character and be delighted with that. We need to be content with what God has given us in our individual callings and in our lives. And yes, some of us have a larger load to bear than others, but we need to be content. And I'll remind you that we live in 21st century America, which John Piper has called the Disneyland of the world. You go to a third world country, that's how the real world lives. You have it all right here. And yet we're the most discontented, grumbling type of people there are. So much like the children of Israel who had God's favor, and yet they grumbled and were judged again and again. So we need to remember the sin of Achan is that pile of stones at the end of chapter 7 is a perpetual reminder of the folly of sin and what the end of sin will bring. Well, let's look briefly at how Joshua is a glorious type and picture of Christ. The name Jesus is simply a Greek rendering for the Hebrew word 
Joshua. All the promises made to Israel and to Abraham were fulfilled in the hands of Joshua as he brought them into the promised land. And so, too, all the promises to God's elect that he will indeed bring us to heaven with him are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Joshua led them into the actual promised land to take possession of the land. And so, too, Jesus says, I will bring them to God that I might bring that he might bring us to God. Peter 3.18 Joshua led Israel into the, the, their inheritance, into what's called their rest. But it was a temporal rest. There were more enemies to come. There were more battles to be fought. And so that the writer of the Hebrews says, For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. And this pointed to the time when Jesus would bring God's people into true rest, an inheritance that could not be taken away from them. Quoting Peter again, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, reserved in heaven for you. That's the rest. That's the real rest that we have to look forward to. In the New Testament, Jesus is God's true warrior, the divine warrior, the one who is the captain of the Lord's army. And in the book of Revelation, don't turn there. I'll just read a few passages here. We see that Jesus Christ leads his people to permanent victory. It says in 1911, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. He is is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. In verse 16, And on his robe and on his thigh... He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is the real captain of the Lord's army that will bring us home. And this inheritance that we receive is not merely some stretch of land in Palestine, but it's an inheritance of the new heavens and the new earth. As he goes on in chapter 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Joshua is a glorious picture of Christ. There's more that could be said, but I hope that whets your appetite to consider how, how he points to Christ in other ways. Well, let's draw some concluding applications. We've seen this morning some of the keys to victory set forth in the life of Joshua, some of the keys to success and prosperity in our lives. And we've also looked at the characteristics and the root elements of spiritual failure clearly set forth in the life of Achan. So we need to remember, brothers and sisters, that our sin affects others around us. It affects ourselves. It affects our family, but it affects the community of believers of which you are a part. And we need to remember that. And I have a question to ask you now. What will you do with the sin that perhaps God by His Holy Spirit has now brought to the very forefront of your mind that maybe has popped up six or seven times during this message, maybe only a couple times? What will you resolve to do with that sin? You individually, at this point, what will you resolve to do? I hope it's to put it to death. Remember that picture, that that time-lapse photography that I described, the web of all the lightning. That's how God sees our sin, and we must confess and forsake it as soon as we think of it. And the purity of the church is at stake. 
You see, it's, remember the one rotten apple in a basket of apples will soon make the whole basket rotten. And so we need to be concerned for one another as well. If we see others struggling with sin, we need to go and encourage them. We need to point them to Christ. Fix your eyes on Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. If you're not struggling in some way, may your cry be that as Ezra. As you look, not just at our church, but the church universal, and you see all the errors that is going on there, Put yourself in Ezra's shoes and say, Oh, my God, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift up my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen above our heads and our guilt has grown even to the heavens. Ezra puts himself with the people of God, with those that take the name of at that time Israel, but those who take the name of Christ. And he cries out and he's embarrassed for the sake of what the church is doing in our day. And that ought to be our prayer that God would move powerfully. We need to use all the means of grace to cultivate that inward life. Augustus Toplady, the writer to Rock of Ages, said this, Either exercise your graces or Satan will exercise your corruptions. So exercise your graces. And then are you willing to take part in the New Testament conquest? The New Testament conquest of the advancement of the kingdom of God and no, I'm not a post-millennialist, but there's something to be said for the fact that we are now, as the people of God, moving into the Gentile territory, proclaiming the gospel, the gospel light into the Gentile darkness. Are you participating in evangelism and in the spread of the gospel, that you would see the name of Christ lifted up and that you would see sinners repent and turn to him? That's the New Testament conquest. We've been looking at the Old Testament conquest of the land. Will you be a part of it? And then to those who do not know God, just a quick word to you. You sit here and you enjoy all the privileges of the people of God. You hear the word of God. You're with, you're with the people of God. You're rubbing shoulders to shoulders. But privileges alone will not save. If privileges alone saved, Judas would, would have been a Christian. Shoulder to shoulder for three years with Christ. Demas, a worker with the Apostle Paul, and yet they're found wanting. Privileges alone will not save. You must repent and confess your sin and trust Christ yourself. Children, you, you, you sit in the blessing of being in a Christian home, but these privileges alone will not save. You hear the Word of God. Your parents instruct you in the Word of God, but you must personally turn to Christ. And don't allow the privileges, children, to harden your heart. Today is the day of salvation. Just like Achan, your sin will be judged. And so turn to him. Come to Christ now. He offers you forgiveness. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you again for the opportunity to consider this rich passage of Scripture. We pray, O oh God, that you would do marvelous things in our midst here. We thank you for how many love your word, how many are experiencing true success and prosperity because they do the things that Joshua has done. They fear you, they love, and they know your word. Lord, I pray that you would build them up. Lord, for those who are in the, on the slippery slope as Achan, we pray that you would do a marvelous work of conviction and restoration, O oh God, and bringing your children back. And for those who do not know you, have mercy, O oh God, and turn hearts to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.